0: Hi, this is Sarah with a quick message about format before this episode commences. I just want to let you know that the early episodes of Let's Talk About Sects differ slightly from later episodes, as the production evolved as I rolled out season one. These first few episodes use voice actors, but it's an element that I decided to abandon after episode four. I want these episodes to remain available to the public even though they don't represent the current podcast format. But if it's not to your taste, you can start with episode five about universal knowledge. Otherwise, thanks for listening and hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right! We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month
2: to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: There is a 95-year-old woman in a Melbourne nursing home who dotes on a plastic baby doll. You wouldn't guess it to look at her. But this is a woman who amassed a multi-million dollar fortune, destroyed families and affected the lives of numerous people. Former police detective, Lex DeMann, said of this woman to 60 Minutes.
3: Of all the crimes that I investigated, she's the most evil person that I've ever met.
0: Welcome to the very first episode of Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Thanks for listening. Before we start, a content warning. This podcast will deal with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to physical and emotional abuse and controlling behaviours, as well as references to suicide. Please consider whether you would like to continue listening on this basis. And content is not suitable for children. From eugenics to reincarnation to yoga, the family took its beliefs from a number of different sources. The head of the family was yoga instructor Anne Hamilton-Byrne, who would recruit educated middle-class people into her following, eventually going on to allegedly abuse and drug children under her care and become the most notorious cult leader in Australia to date. For the purpose of this podcast, we're defining a cult as a group, one, dominated by a charismatic leader or leadership that closely controls its members, particularly with regards to their exercising their free will to disengage with the group and its ideology. Two, who believes that they exclusively have access to the truth and the rest of the world is wrong. And three, who are largely secretive about the workings of their society to outsiders. A quick note on format. Where I've taken quotes from other sources, I've used voice actors, and that's mainly to give you a break from my voice. Anne Hamilton Byrne was born Evelyn Grace Victoria Edwards in Sale, Southeastern Victoria, on December 21, 1921. She was the eldest of seven children, born to Ralph Vernon Edwards, a railway cleaner, and his second wife, Florence. Florence came to be institutionalized for the last 27 years of her life in a psychiatric asylum with paranoid schizophrenia. With her mother unable to look after the children, Anne was sent to live in the old Melbourne orphanage for a period, which was known for abuse. And when she was at home, it was a life of poverty. There were reportedly other cases of psychiatric illness in her extended family as well. Anne grew up and married Don Harris, an Air Force officer, at 20, and had a daughter, Judy, with him. John later died in a car accident in Bathurst, New South Wales, and Anne returned to Victoria. The depth of her devastation at her husband's death led Anne to believe that she'd allowed herself to depend on her husband too much. In the 1950s, she discovered yoga and began to study the practice in earnest. By the early sixties, she was a Hatha yoga teacher in Melbourne and Geelong, with a second husband, Michael Riley. This marriage was not to last long, but was to prove fruitful for Anne in other ways. All who saw her found Anne mesmerizing, whether or not they became entangled in her net. She was undeniably beautiful, charismatic, And also narcissistic. She looked years younger than her true age through a combination of cosmetic surgery, to which she was said to be addicted, and an array of blonde wigs. In ancient times we hear about enchantresses who could enslave people with one glance. She had eyes that looked through your soul, says ex- family member Fran Parker. Raynor Kerry Johnson was born on April 5, 1901, in Leeds, England. The son of a bank clerk, he received a scholarship in natural science to Balliol College at Oxford University, from which he graduated with a master's degree in 1926. Raynor lectured in physics at Queen's University in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and also completed a PhD at the University of London. He married Mary Rubina Buchanan on October 7, 1925, and then started to become interested in psychotherapy. In 1934, Raynor accepted an offer to become master at Queen's College at the University of Melbourne across the world in Australia. Raynor was highly respected for his work at the university, though some questioned his increasing interest in the paranormal. In 1953, he sought out the Irish medium Geraldine Cummins in order to attempt to contact his deceased friend Ambrose Pratt. Over the following years, Geraldine channelled answers from Ambrose and detailed them in letters to Raynor. Then in 1958, one such letter instructed Raynor that he should find a master with schooling in the spirituality of the Himalayas. Reno continued to publish work on the intersection of parapsychology and mysticism with natural sciences and religion, and was invited to speak in front of the Indian Houses of Parliament by India's second president at the end of 1962. This was the same year in which he would meet Anne Hamilton Byrne. The 1960s saw the baby boomers coming of age bringing a counterculture movement backlash to the stifling 50s, to the soundtrack of Bob Dylan and the Beatles. Free Love came along with the advent of the pill and psychedelic mind-expanding experimentation with the rise of LSD as a drug of choice. Progressive movements across the USA and UK spread to the rest of the world after the assassination of JFK and with the anti-Vietnam War movement. The decade culminated in the hippies and flower children of Woodstock in 1969, The Family, while it was not a free-love commune of hippies in any way, was certainly aided in its growth by the rejection of the mainstream and open-mindedness of the period. Film director Rosie Jones, who made the in-depth documentary, The Family, in 2016, told the publication, The Music. In the 1960s, people were rejecting the values of the previous decade and searching for meaning, but were unsure of what they wanted. These were intelligent and good-natured people, and there was an openness to new ideas. I think it's such a pity that Anne's talents were not harnessed for something good and positive, but she thrived on the control. On Saturday, December 22, 1962, a date that Raynor describes as
3: A day of destiny for me.
0: Anne knocked on the door of the highly respected academic, for whom her husband Michael Riley was working as a gardener at the time. Anne told Rayner and his wife, Mary, that on their upcoming trip to India, they should look out for Mary's health, and that I see a point at which you would be wise to return. When Mary did indeed become ill with dysentery, and they had to hasten their return to Melbourne, Rayner started to believe that Anne might have access to some of the answers that he had been seeking for many years. Anne was mixing her spiritual teachings in with her Hatha yoga classes, beginning to implant the seeds with receptive attendees for the recruitment into her cult that was to come. She was also sowing the seeds with Raynor about her true identity as the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. On May 4, 1963, Anne's daughter Judy, who was 19 at the time, was in a car accident near Frankston. She suffered some severe injuries, almost losing the sight in one eye, and Anne responded by organising spirit help and prayers, according to Raynor's diaries. When Judy was discharged a week later, after a major operation, Raynor had no doubt in his mind that this was a miracle. An excerpt from Raynor's diary reads,
3: As I look back over the years, I see how carefully we were shepherded along. We might be reminded by something Anne said that she was just one of us, lest her light should shine too brightly before we were ready and prepared to receive it.
0: Raynor was an important addition to Anne's following, and she spent a lot of time working on his acceptance of her as the master, the title by which she came to be known. His contacts and respectability were hugely beneficial to her credibility. By late 1963, the family, which Raynor also referred to as the Great White Brotherhood, had formed. I spoke with former child victim of the family, Ben Shenton from Perth, and his home internet was having some issues, so please excuse the restaurant noise in the background. But here's what he said about Raynor Johnson.
1: He added credibility to this cult that, that no other person could. And that's why so many people from academia, so many professionals came along and became part of it because he gave it a level of credibility that most people would not give to this.
0: Besides the respectable individuals from Raynor's circle that they were recruiting, which included doctors, lawyers, and other professionals, plus attendees of his adult education classes who, quote, seemed to be longing for spiritual guidance. Anne had a tactic of approaching people, especially women in unhappy marriages, preaching love and selling them on the idea of a chosen family with her encouraging them to leave their spouses in an age when divorce was not yet accepted in society. After they'd been initiated, which might involve just a touch on the head and a few words from Anne, she would then subject them to a process she called going through or clearing, in which they would take large amounts of LSD and other hallucinogenic drugs. This was supposed to take them to a higher plane of understanding, but also left them emotionally vulnerable and susceptible to Anne's various suggestions. Says Barbara Kibby, who was a family member for a time. She knew that if she could get them to leave their husbands, their families would disown them, and she would have them for life. The promise of love that Anne gave to those who were desperately seeking it is one explanation for why they would join a sect like the family. Former member Fran Parker says... Anne wasn't giving love. She was offering it and then taking it back. She broke people's spirit. Here's Ben Shenton again.
1: The way I saw her to do it is she offered love to start with. She um, caused people when they were in desperate need to direct them of how to live, found information about them. And the other thing she used is when they were under the influence of LSD, she would gather information off them and then say well when you're under LSD when when you were in this altered state of consciousness this is what came up okay in other words the person's not even fully aware and they believe this this when I'm under the influence of LSD or psilocybin motion this is when stuff that's in me comes out this is when I get cleared this is when I get audited as it were to use the Scientology (laughs) concept and so those those deep truths can be used against people even if they are manipulated and lied. So the things that I tell you when I'm vulnerable, when I've allowed myself to be in a state of great honesty um, or vulnerability, when they can be used against people.
0: Anne handed out specific books that she used to validate her ideology and open people up to her views, including Science of Breath by Yogi Ramacharaka, Yoga and the Bible by Joseph Leeming, and Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. Followers were asked to hand over properties and money to the sect, and even end happy marriages and change their names at Anne's bidding. Members were also recruited from the patients at New Haven, a psychiatric hospital in the wealthy Melbourne suburb of Kew, of which Anne had close connections. They would be recommended by medical staff working there who were members of the family and who kept an eye out for the type of needful individual Anne was keen to enlighten. Former cult member Patricia McFarlane worked as a nurse there and said later in court that the majority of staff were members of the family. New Haven was making use of LSD in psychiatric treatment at the time and the doctors there were also able to keep Anne in good supply of the drug for her rituals which were integral to her control and persuasion of members. With Anne's followers starting to outgrow the meetings she was now holding at her home in the Dandenong Ranges, in early 1964, Raynor offered her the use of a hall built as a library in the property he and Mary had just bought and named Santiniketan, meaning Abode of Peace. With the large sums of money, followers were regularly asked to donate to the group, Anne was then able to upgrade to a purpose-built lodge with a purple throne for her use on eight hectares at Ferny Creek, designed by two architect family members at a cost of £70,000. Anne was preaching a mix of Buddhism, Christianity and Hinduism, which happened to include a detachment to worldly things. From Raynor's diary again,
3: She said that all worldly things mattered nothing. What we should eat where we should sleep, where we would live, all these things were looked after when we were doing God's will.
0: She was known to endorse the teachings of Siddha Yoga founder Muktananda, whose recordings she would later play to her followers, and she regularly went to visit him at his ashram in New York State's Catskill Mountains. Former Muktananda follower Stan Trout wrote,
2: Out of a love for truth and for those who teach it and appear to embody it, we unwittingly set ourselves up for exploitation and betrayal. Our mistake is to deify another being, and attribute perfection to him. From that point on, everything is admissible. I think the lesson to be learned is that we simply cannot afford to relinquish our individual sovereignty, whether it be in a socio-political setting or in a religious congregation. Those who willingly put aside their own autonomy, their own moral judgement, to obey even a Christ, a Buddha, or a Krishna, do so at risk of losing a great deal more than they can hope to gain.
0: If the Christ, Buddha, or Krishna figure has a narcissistic personality disorder, as is often the case in the charismatic leaders of cults, then all the worse for their followers. In his book, Traumatic Narcissism, Relational Systems of Subjugation, psychoanalyst and former Siddha Yoga follower, Daniel Shaw, looks at the intergenerational nature of what he terms the traumatic narcissist, who has had their own traumas in childhood that they bring to the next generation and especially their children. Quote, the adult traumatizing narcissist is obsessed with maintaining a rigid sense of omnipotent superiority and perfection, of infallibility, self-sufficiency, and entitlement. He defends this conviction of righteousness and justification vigilantly. The psychotic nature of this delusion of righteousness should not be overlooked or minimized. The traumatizing narcissist is often intelligent, socially adept, and highly functioning, ...convinced of his own sanity and skilled at making others feel crazy. Shaw suggests that all cult leaders are, in fact, traumatising narcissists. Ben Shenton told ABC Radio that Anne's power was...
3: ...spiritual, it was physical, she had the ability to be able to control people in a room.
0: As it progressed, the family was built around the idea that Anne Hamilton Byrne was the reincarnation of Christ. Anne told the so-called initiated, that she had knowledge that the world was going to end in the coming years, after which point she would move on to do her work on other planets. Raynor would later come to believe that he was the reincarnation of John the Baptist. They would eventually lead hundreds of followers in various locations, including a community called Kailama, also known as Uptop at Lake Eildon, two hours northeast of Melbourne. Anne was gradually amassing a fortune from her followers, and later acquired numerous other properties, including Broom Farm, a Tudor mansion in Kent, England, and a property with three houses in the Catskills near Muktananda's ashram. The group's motto was Unseen, Unheard, Unknown, as Anne Hamilton Byrne told that she was doing the work of the Lord quietly, and did not require recognition for it. More likely, she wanted to avoid the authorities getting wind of her activities. By the late 1960s, Anne had come up with a radical new idea. It was an idea that would shock the nation upon its discovery 20 years later. Anne was now partnered with William, known as Bill Byrne, a former government counsellor who had left his wife to be with her. She would eventually marry Bill in the 70s, though they had both already hyphenated their names to Hamilton Byrne. Anne's new idea was that they should bring up a perfect line of children as their own and raise them to take the human race forward after the coming apocalypse. Anne would have cult members both procreate with partners that she had chosen for them, And hand over their babies to her, and also adopt children of disgraced young mothers who were pregnant out of wedlock and who didn't ask too many questions. By utilising she and Raynor's hospital and social worker contacts, government forced adoption schemes at the time, and falsifying documents, towards the mid 70s she had 14 adoptees, and with these and the biological children of members, at least 28 children would make their way into the family in total. Children that Anne would dress identically, and some of whose hair she would dye a matching pale blonde. Seven girls were given names derived from the name Anne. All were given the surname Hamilton Byrne, and told that Anne and Bill were their parents, while the other women who looked after them were known as aunties. Photographs of these white blonde children with their identical bob haircuts dressed in velvet jumpers and matching dresses are haunting to look at. You may have seen them in the media or online, and you can have a look via our podcast website. Lake Eildon is an idyllic holiday destination, with its beautiful, serene lake situated right by a national park. Tourists flock there to escape city life for long weekends and family trips in the school holidays. Unfortunately, the children who were brought up to think of Anne as their mother and God were never allowed to swim with the holidaymakers, even on the hottest summer days. In the first chapter of his upcoming book, Life Behind the Wire, Ben Shenton describes the location, and he read this excerpt for us.
1: Kailama was the five-acre property where I lived for the first 15 years of my life. This seemingly idyllic holiday house was found at the end of the dirt road that traced its way along the Taylor Bay arm of Lake Yildon situated in Victoria, Australia. As it wound its way past holiday houses nestled along its shores, the road took its final plunge down the side of the hill and terminated at the Kailama's big brown lot gates. A wooden sign warned any stray person that trespassers will be prosecuted. Two twisted strands of barbed wire Sat atop the fence that encircled and separated the property from Lake Eelden, that lapped up against its other three sides. I would regularly look out through the barbed wire fence at speedboats with water skiers in tow and the many houseboats that moored themselves on the lake's edges. Every year, thousands of Victorians spent their weekends and vacations largely oblivious to what went on behind the barbed wire fences, and inside the two-storied wooden house that stood overlooking the lake. To further ensure that our world remained hidden from any prying curious eyes of the world, in the mid-1970s, pine and native eucalyptus trees had been planted all over the property.
0: You can download the first chapter of the book and read more from Ben Shenton at his website, www.rescuethefamily.com. The children were subjected to harsh punishments under the guidance of Anne, who detailed and authorised each with a signature in a book she called Mummy's Book. though she later blamed the aunties wholly. The aunties were family members who had agreed to dedicate half of their time to Gurusiva, or in the service of their master. With Anne's obsession with weight, the children were often kept hungry, and punishments could involve missing meals for up to three days at a time. 6 a.m. Rise. 6.30. Hatha Yoga. 7.30. Listen to Anne's Doctrines on tape or to Baba Muktananda on tape. 7.45 a.m. Chanting Mantras. 8 a.m. Meditation. Some children spoke of becoming so desperate for food that they rummaged through garbage bins and ate leaves, grass and seeds left out for the birds. And were brutally disciplined when caught. 8.15. Running or physical exercises. They were fed strict vegetarian diets and followed yoga and exercise regimes prescribed by Anne. 8.30 a.m. Breakfast. Fruit. The place they referred to as Uptop at Lake Eildon didn't have mainline electricity until the early 1980s. 9.00 a.m. Schoolwork. 10.45, break. 11am, schoolwork. 12.30, space ball, lunch, steamed vegetables and one or two pieces of fruit. The days were monotonous, following a routine that rarely changed. 1.30, schoolwork. 2.45pm, break. 3pm, schoolwork. The only real variation to routine was a beating punishment or a visit from Anne or Bill, though even then the same basic routine continued. 4pm. Showers, cleaning rooms, packing up schoolroom. 5pm. Meditation. In the creation of her master race, Anne and Bill were bringing up children without showing them any love. 5.20. Tea, usually a bland vegetarian meal. 6pm. Spiritual reading. Ben Shenton compares his childhood to having grown up in an institution and told Triple J.
3: We were brought up to believe that police were evil. We were brought up to believe that adults didn't have our best interests at heart.
0: 6.30. Homework. 9pm. Latest bedtime for oldest children up to 18 years. Another former child survivor, David Whittaker, says...
2: There was only one rule. Do absolutely everything she said. That included what to think what to wear, what to eat, who to marry, who not to marry, total obedience.
0: German psychologist Michael Borg-Lafs identified four basic psychological needs in childhood and adolescence. One, orientation and control, whereby, nobody wants to see himself or herself as a victim of circumstance he or she can't understand and manipulate. Two, self-esteem protection, whereby, it is immediately apparent that a negative self-assessment leads to mental suffering. A particularly dramatic violation of the need for self-protection is experienced by abused and or battered children. 3. Pleasure gain and distress avoidance, whereby The younger humans are, the more is the need for pleasure gain and distress avoidance determining their actual behaviour, because growing older, they will learn more and more to wait for gratifications so that they can stand some distress if they know there will be pleasure later on. And four, attachment, whereby a secure attachment style develops through the experience of emotional availability of caregivers in stressful situations. Anne Hamilton-Byrne and the aunties were failing on all four fronts, which would set the children up for serious psychological problems later in life. In former child member Sarah Moore's autobiography, she says,
4: I believe to deny a child love is to deny its existence as a human being.
0: She writes of children rocking themselves to sleep because they felt so miserable. Reminiscent of children in the notoriously neglectful Romanian orphanages of the 1980s who were often misdiagnosed with mental disabilities due to their rocking, which was really a form of self-stimulation due to a lack of human contact, Sarah says, When we were younger, a few of us, myself included, used to
4: headbang as we rocked. It was a way of seeking comfort. If we were caught, we were punished with another belting or being put outside on the concrete for the remainder of the night
0: or getting cold water tipped over us. Sarah also wrote about the youngest family child, Cassandra, who had just started speaking, being belted so badly by Anne at the age of two that she didn't speak again for many years. Anne told the story to the other children and the aunties at Uptop as Cassandra was living at another property called Winborough at the time, and she remembers the aunties all saying, good on you, and that it was good to teach children from an early age. We'll come back to Sarah more shortly. Former members recall being given doses of drugs, such as Valium, when they were children, to keep them docile, and food being withheld for transgressions as minor as neglecting to close a door. One former child member recalls having his fingers held over a flame by Anne and another member who was actually his real mother, though he didn't know this at the time, while the other children were made to watch. When the children reached the age of 14 for boys or 16 for girls, they were deprived of sleep and injected with copious amounts of LSD over a period of days, as at this age Anne had decided they were ready for her process of going through. Sarah Moore was born on July 8, 1969, to a teenage mother in Geelong, and her mother's doctor being a family member, she was immediately taken to Anne. Becoming Andre Hamilton Byrne, she lived at Uptop until the age of 17. She published a book about her experiences called Unseen, Unheard, Unknown, My Life Inside the Family of Anne Hamilton Byrne, and has spoken of being drugged daily, of beatings, Of being nearly drowned as a punishment and of emotional abuse. Once a week the children were weighed which could result in being put on a diet from their already meagre food rations and Sarah says they were told that their three minute showers should be done with their eyes closed and no washing down there. She says she had never seen a naked male body even in pictures until her high school certificate biology course when she also learned about menstruation and what had been causing her bleeding for years. An excerpt from Sarah's memoir reads, We were in complete
4: isolation at Uptop. We didn't understand where we were situated, even near what city. We didn't even know that we were close to Melbourne, a city of three million people. We had no concept even of what a city was, or of any other human community, other than that in which we existed.
0: Sarah also wrote about long periods when the daily morning yoga sessions were the only exercise the children got, which would happen when there was suspected media interest or a police presence in the area of Uptop, and the children would be kept completely indoors for up to months at a time. If police or unexpected visitors did come knocking at the door, the children piled on top of each other in a spider-webbed hole in the wall of the pump room attached to the boys' room. Boys and girls were not allowed to play together in their limited free time, and close friendships were discouraged, with Sarah and her closest friend at the time, Andrea, being punished by being banned from speaking to one another for a period of 12 months. In some way, Anne may have been trying to make sense of her own childhood deprivations. Another excerpt from Sarah's memoir reads, Anne Hamilton
4: Byrne believed in discipline absolutely. Her religion was based on distorted perceptions of the Hindu notion of karma, that you reap what you sow. Suffering as children was supposed not just to expiate the sins of this life, but also the sins of our past lives. Suffering built up our chances of salvation and redemption. Anne's religion practically called for child abuse. The guiding principle of our rigid existence was discipline. Discipline was the word used to justify abuse.
0: The instruction books that Anne called mummy's rule books were left with the aunties and dictated physical punishments for specific rule infractions during her prolonged periods of absence from up top. Sarah and some of the family children were taken to meet Baba Muktananda when he made a trip to his ashram in Fitzroy, Melbourne, and Anne later took a group to his ashrams in Hawaii and the Catskills in the late 70s and early 80s. Sarah was very taken with the guru and found these periods to be some of the best of her childhood, as Muktananda was kind and gave the children sweets and affection which they were starved of. All Sarah says of Raynor Johnson is that the children were told Raynor was their godfather, and she has some memories of
4: a kindly old fellow with white hair who came to visit us sometimes. In
0: 1983, Uptop was visited by the Australian Federal Police, who were looking for a missing girl named Kim Holm. They didn't find the 13-year-old, who had been missing since April 1980, and whose parents had been former members of the family. As it turned out, sect members had helped Kim's mother take her out of the country to New Zealand, where the two had been living under assumed names without her father's knowledge. In 1984, Anne changed Sarah's name from Andre to Sarah, giving her a New Zealand passport that also changed her birth date to 16 November 1970. Sarah and the other children had a number of different passports with differing names and birth dates for overseas travel. It was in 1984, at the age of 14, that Sarah was also subjected to her first going through on a trip to the Broome Farm property in England. She thinks that following the multiple days and repeated doses of drugs, there was a period of months before she came out of an almost robotic state that had settled on her teenage mind. In that same year, Uptop registered Aquanel College as a school, presumably to curtail further investigations into the children suspected to be there. In 1985, Channel 9 journalist Mari Moore visited Uptop to ask questions about the children being kept there. The aunties denied that there were any children and Mari was never able to get anywhere with her investigation. Today, Ben Shenton has a lot of praise for Mari and her attempts to help.
1: She's an amazing lady who would never step forward to get any accolades but I couldn't speak highly enough of her. She has gone past the call of duty, past the call of what any reporter should ever have to do, and has become deep, loving friend of a lot of us as a result of her compassion and love, wisdom and care. By
0: 1987, Sarah Moore says that she had begun asking too many questions and arguing with Anne and the aunties, and this was the year that she was kicked out of the family at the age of 17. When she learned from a private investigator that Anne was not her mother at all and was a fraud, she was eventually convinced to speak to the police. Dr Raynor Johnson died that same year, and it's said that he was very much disillusioned with the family by the time of his passing. Ben Shenton debates this, however.
1: I, I would challenge that. I believe he died fully believing. I think that's someone being very kind to him, this man, should have as much responsibility as Anne Helenson byrne for the damage done.
0: Police had been receiving word about this strange group of people with their white-haired children in the Lake Eildon area for the last 15 years. But Detective Lex DeMann, who was to make this case his personal mission, said that cases about children were seen by police at the time as domestic matters and not real policing, so there wasn't any real appetite to pursue them. Sarah's revelation of children being drugged with LSD was the key that finally prompted police intervention. On August 14, 1987, at 6.30 a.m., three busloads of police raided Uptop. Reports differ, but they found six to eight Hamilton Burn children there, including Ben Shenton, who was 15 at the time. Sarah accompanied police on the raid along with two other ex-family girls, and once they had given the children at Uptop their reassurances, they were removed from the property and taken into care. Cassandra, the youngest girl who hadn't spoken for three years after her physical assault by Anne at the age of two, grew 11 centimetres in her first year out of the family. She went from looking like a seven-year-old to looking her true age of 11. Sarah recalls a young boy, David, being completely amazed when he was told he could help himself to whatever was in the fridge at the Alambi reception centre they were taken to in Melbourne. I will
4: never forget the look on David's face as he gazed into that fridge and realised he was free.
0: All of the children required psychological assistance, but with no special provisions for their circumstances, had to make do with what social services could offer them. Anne was overseas when the raid happened, and she and Bill took off to their Catskills property in America after the police rescued the children from Uptop. In 1989, Operation Forest was set up to investigate the family on Police Sergeant Lexter Mann's recommendation, and he was seconded to the squad. It was another two years before Lex could find a charge that he thought would stick to get them extradited back to Australia after former family solicitor Peter Kibby decided to speak to the police, then another two years on top of that to find the couple. In a joint operation with the FBI, Anne and Bill were located in America and arrested on June 4, 1993, then brought back to Australia to face their charges. Sarah went on to write her book, study medicine and become a doctor, volunteering her medical expertise in India, Thailand, and Burma, as well as working in various hospitals. She used to get together with the other child survivors every year. August 14 became known to them as their Freedom Day. In 2005, Sarah was given 250 hours of community service after pleading guilty to 160 charges relating to pethidine prescriptions that she had written for herself between November 2004 and April 2005. She had been diagnosed as suffering from bipolar disorder, depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. A few years later, she attempted to take her own life and although she fortunately survived, the attempt resulted in an infection in her leg and it later had to be amputated above the knee. Sarah passed away in May 2016 at the age of 46 from causes that have not been made public. She had never stopped fighting for justice for herself and the former child members. Anne and Bill Hamilton-Byrne were only ever convicted for falsifying documents in 1994 And received a fine of $5,000 each. At the time, the children were thought to be too traumatized to go through the court process and give evidence against them, and legally there were statutory limitations in place for many of the alleged crimes. Several aunties were given light jail terms for $200,000 worth of social security fraud. Later cases brought against Anne by former child victims have been settled out of court, for estimated sums of around a quarter of a million dollars. One can only speculate that had Sarah Moore's childhood tormentors and the state that allowed this to happen been held accountable, whether she and some of the other childhood family survivors who have ongoing psychological issues or who did die by suicide might have had a better chance of dealing with their scars. Here's Ben Shenton again.
1: I believe the government was complicit. I believe when it was brought to the government's attention that there were children being abused with LSD way back before 1987. Moncrief, if memory serves me correct, took the reporter from Channel O took it all to the government minister. It just disappeared.
0: Some former child members have done better, such as Ben, who has forgiven Anne and became a born-again Christian pastor in Ballarat before moving to Western Australia, where he continues to work for IBM as a certified project manager, and others who have chosen to go on with their lives outside of the media spotlight. But all deserve recognition for what was allowed to happen to them. An entry in Sarah's blog on April 6, 2014 reads... Whilst her mother was a psychotic that ended
4: her days in an asylum, unlike her mother, Anne managed the extraordinary achievement of moulding a new world around her so successfully for so long instead of having to try to survive in the outside world, where she would have been medicated and prevented from harming others. I hope that the family will remember its history when and if it ever survives as an entity. I ask nothing more of those that remain, other than not to do anything more to hurt others. That means that we must always acknowledge the truth about her and the family. That it was a failed experiment and built on the delusional world of an unwell woman. That also it gained huge power and influence in the community from 1960s onward. And that power and influence allowed Anne to get away with hurting so many. That it is an indictment not only on Anne and those in the family that carried out her evil bidding, but on the state of Victoria itself that she largely got away with it. And that because of that, so many have needlessly continued suffering longer than they should.
0: Bill Hamilton-Byrne died in 2001. And today, Anne Hamilton-Byrne can be found at Centennial Lodge nursing home, talking to and dressing a plastic baby doll. Although her mind has been overcome with dementia, a few avid believers still visit her and believe her to be the reincarnation of Christ. They are also the powers of attorney over her estate, worth an estimated 10 to 20 million dollars. Sarah Moore wished that the cult's assets be seized by the state upon Anne's death, and their proceeds be used to compensate the victims. As mentioned earlier, Australian filmmaker Rosie Jones has made a documentary about the family, which I watched earlier this year after writing this podcast episode. And I hear the team is creating their own in-depth podcast based on their extensive original research as well. So keep an ear out for that one if you found this interesting and would like to know more. Though it may be hard to understand how people can be complicit in their own indoctrination into a cult like the family, Ben Shenton doesn't see it quite that way.
1: We should not be saying this is a weird religious cult. How come these brave, sane people, how do they get sucked in? (laughs) Easy. We all are dealing with our conscience. We're all dealing with issues and problems of life. We're all looking for what the answer is. And when you reject what the answer is because of what you decisions you've made and you won't come back to going, I got it wrong, I screwed up, I have to now fix this the proper way. Well, of course you're going to be after the quick fix pill. Someone comes along saying, I'll fix that. All your past is wiped away. I'll, I'll deal with all your conscience issues. Just I'll tell you how to live your life. I'll fix it up. Just follow this program, this program, this program, and quick fix.
0: We'll leave the final word with Dr. Sarah Moore from a post she made on her Google Plus page on May 16, 2014. As
4: Anne herself is close to dying, let us hope that it is an opportunity to once more bring into the public sphere and engender some discussion about how such a group could penetrate through the highest levels of society and continue to operate for so long without being exposed. May those who have felt forgotten by this society through the times that they have suffered abuse from this cult, or from the complicity of those that kept it quiet, may all those families who suffered because their children were taken away or their loved ones were abused within New Haven or via adoption or absorption into the family, perhaps feel some sense that they are not forgotten and will not always remain unseen, unheard and unknown.
0: been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to cult information and family support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au. And you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com and the Freedom of Mind Resource Centre via freedomofmind.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia, or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at www.iasp.info. Let's Talk About Sex is researched and presented by Sarah Steele. A very special thanks to Ben Shenton for his generous contributions to this episode. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. Voice work by Emma Corrick, Georgina Morris, Jessica McLean, Christian Lee, and Joe Gould. All information sources are listed on our website at ltaspod.com.
3: Planning for your next trip?
0: Thanks again for listening and hope you can join us next time when we'll talk about the Ugandan Doomsday Cult, the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God.